everything you need to be successful needs to be right there. Because when you go to attempt that intubation, that first attempt needs to be your absolute best attempt. Here you on eight. Here you on eight. Okay, you're clear. Stand by for your base. Welcome to EMS Cast, where we provide high-level education for you, the providers on the streets. For those of you new to the show, I am your host, Ross Orpit, and I am a recovering paramedic, currently an EMS fellowship trained emergency physician. And I have with me my co-host, Will Barry. I am a paramedic by trade. I currently work for a critical care transport service here in North Carolina that does ground and rotor wing transports. And I was a paramedic for most of my career in Colorado and most of that time for the city and county of Denver. Ross, great to sit down and talk with you again. Yeah, man, it's great to be back. What have you been up to recently? Oh, man, we just got back from a trip to the North Carolina mountains, which was awesome. We were in a house right on the Tennessee border, which is actually doesn't compare to Colorado in terms of altitude, but for the, this part of the world, that is the highest mountains you can get before you hit the Rockies. So it was really beautiful. Nice. Played with my kids and chopped a bunch of firewood, actually. Broke a sweat. Any snow on you guys? Yeah, we got two inches up there, which is pretty nice. You know, it doesn't linger around, but it's enough to kind of wet my appetite a little bit and remind me how much I miss it. So yeah, man, what have you been up to? That's awesome. I'm jealous that you got snow because I'm here in Southwest Colorado and I feel like it's been a couple weeks since we got any sort of significant snow and I'm just dying. But despite that, I still had a great last four days, not to brag, but I had some friends in town. We did some ice climbing one day, some skiing at the resort the other day, some skiing on the pass and the other day and then actually did some fly fishing this morning because it was 60 degrees and sunny. And so we thought, why not? (laughs) So, but I am missing the snow right now in the middle of February. Yeah. I'm jealous. That is a Southwest Colorado brochure that you just lived out, which is awesome. (laughs) It was a good four days. I'm going to be honest, I'm a little exhausted right now. So I need, I need to go back to work to get a little bit of a reprieve from all my adventuring. Well, today, what are we going to be talking about? Will? you have a topic you want to talk about today. Yeah. So the seed of this idea was the SALAD approach to intubation. SALAD is an acronym and we'll get into that. But before we do, thinking about the SALAD approach and intubation in general brings up a lot of thoughts I have about paramedics and intubation speaking broadly. So the idea has sort of evolved into a few points that, I, that we'll cover. Yeah. Why did you want to talk about this? What was the impetus? Well, good question. So I think pre-hospital intubation is actually researched a lot. It's debated even more. I think that the debate is even talked within EMS circles, almost centered around whether this skill should be allowed. So it's kind of binary, right? It's like, should paramedics be allowed to intubate people or not? Is it helping or not? But before I I think we talk about removing the skill of intubation from paramedics, we need to look at, are we training paramedics? So My goal with the podcast is to give some practical tips to pre-hospital providers that you could potentially implement on the next airway that you might be called to manage. 
we're not going to magically teach you a lot of things in the course of this podcast, but hopefully we can give you some practical things that you can do, you can train on a mannequin, and they don't require repetition on real patients, which a lot of paramedics lack. And we unfortunately have to norm a couple things that might ruffle some feathers first. You know, paramedics are fighting an uphill battle regarding to their ability to intubate. And I say this for two reasons. First, we're intubating some of the least optimal patients to intubate, patients that are incredibly sick and, you know, they have a lot of pathology happening. Maybe they're in a shock state, they're hypotensive. Trauma creates a lot of barriers to successful intubation, blood, vomit, teeth, fractures, damaging structures, C-spine immobilization. But we're also doing the skill in bizarre positions. We don't always have people assisting us who are trained to do it themselves or have ever even seen it done. Uh, we might be on a floor or, you know, in someone's living room. And all of this, when you start hearing traditional intubation practices and traditional intubation tips, some of it just doesn't apply. And then you start talking about lack of frequency. The cold hard fact is doing this skill makes you better at it. And why do they call anesthesia in the hospital when there's a difficult airway down in the emergency room? Or, you know, they have the most experience with the skill. Now, there are people out there that say this is a reason to remove the skill from paramedics, but I say it's a reason for us to train hard and to practice very good habits and technique and to try to set ourselves up with as many advantages as we can have knowing the, the difficult patient subset and environment we're going to be doing this skill in. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that, you know, the majority of the research surrounding this, the robust research surrounding pre-hospital intubation is in cardiac arrest. And most of that research has shown no difference with intubation versus a supraglottic airway versus BVM. But in my mind, that's one subset of patients that we might intubate is the cardiac arrest patient. And if it makes no difference, if the outcomes are just as good with an ET tube versus a supraglottic device, I truly believe that this skill can be life-saving in certain situations, i.e. trauma or other situations in the pre-hospital setting. If it makes no difference, if survival is the same with an ET tube as it is with a supraglottic device, my personal opinion is we should be intubating these cardiac arrests so that we can practice this skill. Like you said, we need to do it to get better at it so that we have that skill ready when it will make a difference on some other call. But just like you said, these are actually rare in the pre-hospital setting. And so we do need to train. We need to train very specific and targeted at this skill to make sure that we are not causing harm that we are actually doing benefit. So talk to me more about this. Yeah, I wanna discuss some very practical things that can be applied to your practice as a paramedic that will hopefully make you a better intubator without the benefit of a lot of live patient repetition. The first thing I wanna talk about is make your first attempt your best attempt. Prepare your equipment and assess your patient. And so, I'll start this concept off with a story. So my partner and I responded to a high-rise apartment building for a cardiac arrest. When we arrived, there was an apartment door open. There was a woman on the floor 
in her maybe 70s or 80s, and there was a man doing chest compressions on her. As we took over with the fire department, the gentleman said he was the across the hall neighbor. This patient banged on his door, so he knew her, you know, oh, that's, you know, so-and-so, she lives across the hall from me. He opened the door, and she then collapsed in his arms, pulseless. He dragged her back into her apartment, called 911. My protocol at that time was to intubate these patients. And so as we're working the cardiac arrest, I go in to intubate this woman and I see something and I don't know what it is. So I asked my partner, like, give me the suction, go in with the suction and something sticks to it. Like when you put your hand over the tube of the vacuum cleaner, that's kind of what happened. And as I gently withdrew the suction catheter, there was a chunk of something. I still, to this day, I do not know what it was. I don't know if it was food that she was eating and that caused her cardiac arrest. I don't know if this was some sort of maybe cancerous mass that had been growing in the back of her airway and then somehow dislodged. I don't know what it was, but it hammered home an important concept to me. I did not know what I was going to see in her airway until I put the blade in her mouth and started to look. And so no matter what you think you're going to encounter when you, during your intubation attempt, you need to be prepared for whatever you can find. Set up your equipment for success. Have your suction available and ready. Have your McGill forceps available and ready. Make sure your blade is functioning. Know what your secondary airway device is going to be, whether you use a superglottic or whatever your system chooses. Have your bag. Everything you need to be successful needs to be right there because when you go to attempt that intubation, that first attempt needs to be your absolute best attempt. There are some studies that have shown with subsequent attempts, there is potentially increased adverse outcomes, which... It's a little bit intuitive, but it still hammers home this point. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've hammered this home on on other podcasts. Go back and listen to our, you know, the physiologically difficult airway. You need to be prepared. You need to be prepared with plan A, B, C, D, E. You need to be prepared for making your first attempt your best attempt, as you just said. But also, if that fails, what's your next plan? And then what's your next plan? And I think that if you can bag somebody, if you can BVM, you got time. You got time to set up and prepare and make sure all your tools are right where you need them, right where you want them. Make sure your assistant knows what they need to do. Make sure you got all the things you need. You got time to proceed through your plans one, two, and three if you run into trouble. Because at the end of the day, if you can oxygenate them, if you can BVM them, you got time to make this work. But if you can't BVM, you may need to move quicker and be prepared to crike if you run into trouble trying to intubate because you no longer have time to run through your backup plans two and three. Exactly. My very first take-home thing that you can do next shift is to have your equipment ready. If you don't take your portable suction in on a cardiac arrest, start doing it. If you don't routinely get out your McGill forceps during an intubation attempt, I would strongly encourage you to do that as well. Prepare your equipment and know it. The other thing like you're touching on is pre-oxygenate. There's plenty of podcasts, plenty of studies that go into why this is so critically important. 
in a nutshell, if you're not a total believer in this or you've never heard of this concept, I think about it on a super simple level. The lungs turn them into like a scuba tank. You know, most of the air we breathe in is nitrogen. If you start to wash that out by putting lots of oxygen in, then they have a reserve built up so that when you do go to intubate this patient, there is oxygen in their lungs and they can maintain longer than otherwise. Now that mainly applies to somebody who is breathing spontaneously and maybe we're going to do like a drug-assisted intubation, but there's plenty of other podcasts and literature surrounding apneic oxygenation. So pre-oxygenate your patient. If you don't know about these concepts, please dig into that research because it it is changing practice all over the country. And lastly, assess your patient. Now, it's easy to give a lot of lip service to this. You know, I'm not necessarily advocating for Malinpati score, any of these things, but take a second and look. What is the shape of their face? How wide can they open their mouth? Are they a no-neck type patient? All these things impact our approach and what we're walking into. And it goes back to that first tenant, make your first attempt your best attempt. Great. So how are we going to do that? How are we going to approach this? Let's say we've done all these things. We have our equipment ready. We've prepared our patient well in terms of pre-oxygenation. We also want to position them well and the best positioning Roughly, not going to say always, but think ear to sternal notch. It's a little difficult in a not visual medium, but if you search intubation ear to sternal notch, you're going to get a lot of diagrams of how to set this up appropriately. But imagine the corner of the ear lined up with the sternum. So if you need to pad under their head, do that. That positioning and the pre-oxygenation can happen while you're setting up the rest of your equipment. And that's something that is great about having people that work with you frequently or a good team or just being keyed into this so that you can coach other first responders and what you need them to do. Hey, can you fold this towel up and place it right under the patient's head? And I'll just make a plug for our August 15th episode, 2023, Are You Prepared for Your Next Intubation, where we went through all the ways to set your patient up and the checklist that you need to follow to be prepared for your next intubation. That's episode 47, Are You Prepared for Your Next Intubation with Dr. Stacy Trent. So check that out and make sure you're prepared before you start. But let's, let's go. We're prepared. What do we do next? Yeah, the next main concept that has been very helpful for me as a paramedic has been this idea of visualizing the epiglottis. What do I mean by that? When you insert a laryngoscope into someone's airway, whether you're doing direct laryngoscopy or video laryngoscopy, sometimes I think we get taught, we're always looking for the vocal cords. We're looking for these white cords that are going to be this opening where we want to pass the tube. I would argue that one thing that's potentially more identifiable and easier to see is going to be the epiglottis. And if we can identify the epiglottis, then we can identify the glottic opening in the vocal cords. So often we're taught to look for the white vocal cords, right? But this is difficult for several reasons. First, contaminants, blood, vomit, they can cover the white coloration. 
Second, the epiglottis can be covering the vocal cords, depending on if we've manipulated the anatomy a certain way. So remember, that's the job of the epiglottis. It covers the vocal cords while we swallow. Lastly, parts of the esophagus, depending on, again, patient anatomy or pathology, they can appear white sometimes and even create what I kind of unofficially call false vocal cords. This isn't really like a documented phenomenon, but if you manipulate the tissue in such a way, you may stretch it out and it kind of looks whitish. But also if you think about, you know, burn patients with singeing in the airway, sometimes the coloration of these things is not really identifiable. So back to the very first thing we were talking about, we don't always intubate enough as paramedics to have enough reps looking in hundreds of airways and developing some finer pattern recognition. All this to say, our first goal when we start our attempt at laryngoscopy should be to identify the epiglottis. Once we identify that structure, our next move is dictated by which blade we're using. So how do we identify the epiglottis? Back to anatomy. The epiglottis sits at the base of the tongue. No matter how bad someone's airway is, we can usually identify their tongue. If structures are so badly damaged that the tongue is unrecognizable, well, you may have just given yourself justification for a crike. Let's say you open the mouth and there's a tongue. Insert the tip of your blade onto the tongue so you can look and see the blade is in contact with the tongue. Then start to work the blade further into the mouth and follow the tongue, also applying pressure to the tongue to lift it, as you've probably been taught. But continue to work the blade until you see the epiglottis. Will, I'm going to slow you down here just a bit. And so I totally agree with you. This needs to be a methodical and almost slow approach to this. And the goal is to find the epiglottis, but you should approach it in a very controlled manner where you identify structures all along the way. So you always know where you are. So you never get lost as you're moving towards that epiglottis. So the first thing you do, you don't just shove the blade in the mouth and look. First, you open the mouth and identify the tongue, just like you said. Open the mouth, see the tongue. I know where I am. There's the tongue. Insert your blade straight over the center of the tongue. That old adage of sweeping the tongue just tends to cause more problems. That tongue starts flopping on the side. It, it becomes harder to assure that you're midline with your blade at that point and you can get lost easier. So go midline right over the center of the tongue. And next you're going to identify the uvula. You're going to identify the uvula and the tonsillar pillars sitting there. And that's the posterior oropharynx. So you know where you are. You're, you're in the posterior oropharynx. You're going to slowly move past those. And once you get past those, you know you're in the hypopharynx. And the next thing you should be looking out for is that epiglottis, which should be soon in view. This entire process is slow, controlled, methodical, assuring you know where you are with your blade the entire time. Remember, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Absolutely. And I'm glad you paused there and said the things you said, because I've seen this a lot from pre-hospital providers, and I believe it's a direct result from poor teaching and training practices, or what some people now call like a training scar. But they basically insert their blade in all the way, and then they try to withdraw it until they see things that they're familiar seeing. Don't do that. Uh, I think you set yourself up for failure because your blade is going to be in their esophagus 
and you're going to look in there and you're like, oh my God, I haven't done this in six months. And oh, I see some sort of orifice. That must be their airway. And I'm going to put a tube in that. Yeah, you start off lost. You start off lost. You're like, I, you put your blade in there and there's just pink tissue everywhere and you have no idea yeah. what it is, where you are. Yeah. So use finesse. So as we just described, starting on the tongue, working down the airway, continue to work the blade until you see the epiglottis. Once you see the epiglottis, choose your own adventure based on your blade choice. If you have a straight blade, pass it over the epiglottis and lift with the blade. Again, using finesse. Remember, the vocal cords should be just on the other side of the epiglottis. The epiglottis cover the vocal cords. That's their job. So continue that deliberate advancement. If you're using a Mac blade, well, you've probably been taught the tip of the blade should go in the vollecula. Continue to follow the curvature of the tongue and slip the tip of the blade above the epiglottis, what's going to feel like above the epiglottis. That's the vollecula. Once you're there, push the tip of the blade into that space. I find that I sometimes visualize pushing the tip of the blade or advancing it further into the, the vollecula space. Sometimes we're taught to lift or rotate or crank or lever. In my opinion, this can all develop bad habits. You should have a goal with an expected outcome. If I think to myself, I'm going to push the tip of the blade into the vollecula, well, then it engages the hypoepiglottic ligament. Now, look this up on YouTube. There's some great videos that, especially Dr. Christine Witten, she's an anesthesiologist that has a blog called The Airway Jedi. She has some great videos of this. But when we push the tip of the blade into the vollecula and engage the hypoepiglottic ligament, you're basically going to it's almost a little bit of a cheat code. I don't want to make it sound too easy, but it helps that epiglottis fold up and voila, reveal the glottic opening. Again, on our podcast medium, it's a little difficult to describe, but there's some phenomenal videos that we can link to in the show notes. Talk to me a little bit about blade choice. You briefly mentioned it, you know, choose your own adventure, Miller versus Mac. What's your opinion on those? Yeah, I don't want to get into a whole episode that's a debate on blade choice, but if you're listening to this and you're curious about my preference, and maybe you're honestly needing a starting point for your practice, grab a Mac 3. We have a podcast about whether you should choose a Mac 3 or a Mac 4. If you want a little more insight into that and how it's been studied, check out that episode. But the takeaway was use what you're comfortable with. Now, Mac versus Miller, I'll push you towards Mac, and I'll discuss that more. So if it comes down to Mac versus Miller, I'm going to push you towards a Mac. I think despite what pre-hospital providers think, we do not intubate a lot. Compared to anesthesiologists and emergency room physicians, we do not intubate a lot. We should be implementing practical habits that increase our chances of success. That being said, the width of a Mac blade can help you manipulate the tongue and the anatomy. A lot of times it's a really great size just to fit the anatomy and get right into the vollecula like we're talking about. And when I've engaged anesthesiologists about blade choice, a lot of them use a Miller. And when I push them even harder, it comes down to this like sense of feel and finesse that they can't really tangibly talk about, but I know it's been honed over intubating hundreds and hundreds of people. You're absolutely right. 
the Miller blade takes a lot of finesse. I used to think when I was a paramedic, you know, you just shove that thing in there and you get over the epiglottis, you lift everything out of your way and it's just this brute force instrument. But actually to get that Miller over the epiglottis so that you can see the vocal cords takes a lot of finesse because you can't go too far. You can't go too short. It's this like get just in the right spot and then just dip it and catch the epiglottis and get it out of the way. It's actually a lot harder than we make it sound and so i agree i'm big big mac fan yes so takeaway i'm not going to argue with you but if you truly want my opinion always start with the mac 3 adjust from there if they're bigger than that then go up to a mac 4 if they're smaller than that well you're probably honestly in pediatric range and then you can you know we're going to be shifting anyway the mac 3 should fit a vast majority of our patients so Let's go back to our journey towards intubating the trachea. Once the vocal cords are in view, do not take your eyes off of them. Practical tip, do not divert your attention. Even if you divert your attention slightly, let's say you're reaching for the tube, hey, hand me this, hey, you know, move this, whatever, your arm can shift, the patient can shift, and then you can lose your view. Once you have a view of the glottic opening, hold it. So once we have our view, we want to hold it. And this is where having great partners comes into play. They should be able to hand you what you need next, or you should be able to tell them, hey, hand me this. They know what it is and they put it in your hand so that your attention rather does not get diverted from your view. Yes. Having an assistant is almost a necessary, in my opinion, in this scenario. And the key to this being successful relationship is clear communication. Personally, I prep my tube and my bougie the way I want them. And then I give them to my assistant and I tell them exactly what to expect. For example, when I am ready to intubate, I will ask you for either the tube or the bougie, please hand to me either one when I ask. While I'm performing laryngoscopy, I may ask you for some crike pressure. Please do not apply pressure without me asking. If I do need pressure, I will apply it myself and then I will ask you to hold it where I have it. Please periodically tell me what the oxygen saturations are and if at any point the sats drop below 88, I will remove the blade and we will start bagging until we can get those oxygen saturations back up. Yeah, that's awesome. And even that I think is, that's phenomenal communication. But what I also think about is you're also probably speaking to somebody that has a frame of reference for the things you're talking about. Like we get that with our paramedic or EMT partner, especially if we've trained them up. But let's say we're working with a, a first responder of some kind that is, you know, just to EMT basic, or maybe they're just certified to the first responder level. They don't work with a paramedic. They don't know what it. They may not even know what an endotracheal tube is. And so sometimes you have to be as deliberate as see this, hold it right here and put it in my hand when I tell you to. And whatever shade of that works for you in your system. But I think it's best for you, like Ross is advocating for, take a minute and have that discussion so that it's not just this chaotic jumbled mess. Cause again, once you have that view, you do not want to lose it. So let's take a minute really quick to discuss video laryngoscopy. 
There are studies showing the benefit of video versus direct laryngoscopy. My bottom line on this is you're only going to use what's available to you. Again, I'm not doing a podcast on video versus direct. It's just not worth the argument, honestly, because for a lot of pre-hospital providers, that decision is kind of made for you. If your system doesn't have a video laryngoscope, then you don't have it available to you. If they do have it available to you, then they may have a policy or protocol that dictates it should be your first attempt. So in my opinion and in my experience, it's not super common to encounter an EMS provider that has all these tools available to them and they get to totally just pick whatever they want. That said, if you do have a choice, I will say use video. My current protocol specifies that our first attempt should be with video. If you have both available and you can choose, I still urge you to use video. I'm not going to make arguments like, well, DL is a skill, and if we don't use it, we lose it. Sure, there may be some truth in that. But again, my initial focus with this is make your first attempt your best attempt. And I believe that video laryngoscopy facilitates that. I absolutely agree. So... What if we're doing all these things and it's a mess or we anticipate it being a mess? And when I say a mess, I mean blood or emesis in the airway. How do we set ourselves up to make our first attempt our best attempt when there's possibly contaminants in the airway? Well, that's where we enter the initial seed for this discussion, which is salad. So SALAD is an acronym that stands for Suction Assisted Laryngoscopy and Airway Decontamination. Now, I can't take credit for really any of this, but especially not SALAD. That was really pioneered by Dr. Jim Ducanto. Dr. Ducanto is a practicing anesthesiologist in Wisconsin and does quite a bit of pre-hospital education as well. He's basically pioneered the salad technique and has marketed online, and he's created a couple of key products actually around salad, namely a really good training mannequin that continuously vomits for you to practice intubating it. And he also has a cool partnership between him and the great folks over at MCRIT, which is another popular podcast and blog platform. And they have a website with a ton of resources concerning specifically salad, including some articles where it's been studied and some great videos that demonstrate everything that we're about to talk about. So what exactly is salad? Well, in short, we're using our suction to clear the way for our blade. And as I said, there's going to be a lot of things we're going to talk about. It's going to be kind of hard because you can't visualize it, but there's a lot of awesome videos online and we can point you towards some of those. But The critical equipment you need to perform salad during an intubation is you need suction, you need your blade, you need your tube, and you need a bougie. Obviously, you're going to have plenty of other equipment, but those are like the critical things you need for the salad approach. So how do you do it? First, hold your laryngoscope in your left hand. Then hold your rigid suction catheter in your right hand with the opening downward and in a closed fist. Like you want some power behind the suction catheter. Have the rest of your equipment prepped, ready to go. Have your assistants trained and ready to go. 
because once you go into this airway, your suction clears it, you need to be ready to act. So the first thing you're going to do is you're going to insert your suction catheter into the mouth with the right hand, and you're going to begin to suction out whatever emesis is there. As you're removing that emesis, you're going to advance the suction catheter to the base of the tongue and pause again, if necessary, to clear any contaminants. Once you've cleared quite a bit with your left hand, you're going to, again, begin to insert the blade starting at the midline of the tongue and following the curvature of the tongue back. Now, one of the nice things about the deliberate instructions of how to hold the suction catheter is you can actually use the curvature of the suction catheter to lift the tongue a little bit to facilitate getting the blade in with your left hand. But again, that's a little more finesse. The main goal is we want the suction down in the oropharynx, removing contaminants. The blade should never go deeper than the suction catheter. And this is really important, especially with video laryngoscopes, because if you get your video laryngoscope past the tip of your suction catheter, well, then you could get blood or emesis on the camera, and then it's pretty much out of commission. You can't see anything with it anymore. So you want to keep that suction catheter deeper than your blade. Yeah, this is called leading with the suction, and it's a very important point. And even if there's no vomit, no contaminant in there, always lead with your suction. Clear out saliva that's in your way, and if suddenly they do start vomiting or blood starts pooling up out of the esophagus, you're suddenly ready with your suction to get it out of your way. You're not frantically trying to find it. Exactly. Continue to work the suction and the blade until, again you might be able to visualize the epiglottis. Now, once you kind of have the view of the epiglottis, the hardest part, and it's still like a little clunky, even if you practice salad a lot, you need to transition that suction catheter from your right hand and park it in the left corner of the mouth. So it goes from to the, as you're looking down at your patient, it goes from to the right of your laryngoscope blade to the left of it, still deep into their oropharynx where it can clear stuff out of the way, but now it's not in your way anymore. Talk to me about this a little more. Like, how are you securing and holding that suction in place? Because in my mind, you do this and it just tries to pull out or flop back over in your way. Are there any tips with regard to this? I am no expert. I would say what I have found is you're inserting that suction catheter deep enough that it holds itself there. It's down. Okay pretty much past the epiglottis and the glottic opening because that way if you think about it let's say more vomit is bubbling up it's not getting a chance to even impede your view because it's getting sucked up before it gets there make sense got it yeah so we're going to get that suction catheter parked in the left corner of their mouth again once i have my view i do not take my eye off of it my right hand is now free to do what I need to do. Now, what the salad technique will tell you to do, which I personally agree with, your next reach is for a bougie. Again, bougies can assist with first pass success, and we're trying to make our first attempt our best attempt. So we're going to pass the bougie, then something we do where I currently work that I like, 
we work with our partners quite frequently is I put the bougie in and I advance it until it stops. Now, some people call that positive holdup or positive stop sign, but basically the bougie reaches the carina and it can't go any further. It's not really going to go all the way into their right main stem or left main stem. It's going to stop. Some people talk about the bougie clicking on the vocal cords. Personally, I don't know. I never feel that. I think your heart rate's kind of amped up anyway, especially if it's really messy, but you can't argue with it just stopping. (laughs) So if you were to get that bougie into their esophagus, which hopefully if you've done all of these preceding steps, that would not happen. But if that bougie were in their esophagus, in theory, it would advance pretty far, almost depending on your patient to the point where it was like gone. (laughs) So if it stops, we're in a good place. So current practice where I work that I like is I then hold the bougie and my partner starts to advance the tube onto the bougie. Like it's kind of happening like at my forehead, if you will. Because remember, once I have my view, I don't take my eye off of it. They then feed the tube onto the bougie. And when they get the tube on, they grab the top part of the bougie and they say, I have the bougie. Then I grab the endotracheal tube and I say, I have the tube. So I advance that endotracheal tube in, and then I hold it once it's in the vocal cords, and I watched it pass through. I can hold the tube, and I can say something to them along the lines of, okay, ready to withdraw the bougie or take out the bougie, some sort of cue that it's safe to take it out. And this is a really important point. I think many people get really excited when they've passed the bougie and then remove the blade thinking I'm in the cords, but do not remove the blade until you watch that tube pass through the cords. Not only is direct visualization of the tube through the cords, very important for tube confirmation, but keeping the blade in place and your eyes on the cords assures the bougie does not inadvertently dislodge. And you continue to keep that soft tissue out of the way with the blade to allow for easier passage of the tube over the bougie. Exactly. And I mean, to your point, if I withdraw the blade and get rid of my view, then let's say as someone's withdrawing the bougie, especially maybe somebody that isn't used to helping you or they're more amped up than you are. If they grab that tube and even back it out like a centimeter, that could be enough for you to just have extubated your patient. So hold on to that view as long as you possibly can. Then I kind of have my hands full at this point. So I have my blade, I have the tube. If the tube's in the trachea, I am not letting go of that tube. So my partner then has to, ideally it's your partner. Sometimes you have to let go of the tube, but in a perfect world, once that tube's in there, that's yours, you own it you hold on to it, you don't let go. Someone needs to put the air in the balloon and inflate it. And at that point, and only then am I a little more comfortable withdrawing my blade. Now, where I currently work, what we do then is, depending on our SATs and the hemodynamics of our patient, before we even put our first breath in, we will deep suction the patient. Now, We're at a little bit of an advantage with this because we have a device called a Ballard suction, which if you're not familiar, they mainly exist in the hospital setting, but your deep suctioning is typically a sterile procedure. They try to make it as sterile as possible. So most ambulances around the country, there's a 
some sterile gloves that are probably dry rotted and they're there because of either deep suctioning or OB stuff. But a lot of times the sterile gloves go hand in hand with your French suction catheter. Even though I've never actually seen anybody perfectly execute sterile technique for their deep suctioning. The advantage of the Ballard device, which you may or may not have access to, is your French suction catheter that's going to go down your endotracheal tube is within a sterile sleeve. So you don't have to don any special gloves or anything. You just pop the Ballard on there, advance the catheter, and then do a quick deep suction. So I tell you this only to illustrate the point of decontaminating the airway is this important. If you can do it, it is this important. So we will attach our Ballard suction, we will do a deep suction, and then we will actually do our first breath with our waveform capnography to confirm. Yeah, and I think this is maybe probably more important for that airway where like there's vomit, there's contamination all over the airway when you get in there and see that, then yeah, I think this deep suctioning may be very important. Outside of that, you know, intubating your standard cardiac arrest, there's no contaminants that you visualize. Maybe important if you're having difficulty oxygenating, but maybe not as important right up front. I 100% agree. And let me make a quick distinction that when I say always, I'm kind of more referring to our training context. So we practice this way so that this skill is there. But yeah, we're not maybe deep suctioning every single patient we intubate before our first breath. But it's a good thing to practice because it does take some coordination. Oh, absolutely. To be able to get it done and do it quickly, like you need to know you need to know where the equipment is, you need to know how to use it. You gotta practice it. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Once we've done that first breath, we've confirmed with our capnography and our we have a good waveform. Also, of course, listen to breath sounds and then secure our tube with a commercial device of some kind or whatever's available to you. That probably sounds like a lot. And it is a lot. But I want to be clear, it sounds like a lot because we just went through the minute details. All of this does not have to happen in a long time. This can all happen quickly with the right training and practice. And these are all things that you can practice on a mannequin, in your apparatus bay, in your training room, in your sim lab, wherever. These are things that you can practice and then hopefully put into play on your next shift. Yeah, this is great, Will. These minute details are exactly what you need to pay attention to. And not only can you practice this on a sim man, but if you Go to this level of detail. You can mentally simulate this every night if you wish. Yeah, this is one of those things that you can totally visualize, just like the great basketball player on the free throw line, you know, in their mind taking the game-winning shot. Like, you can totally go through these steps in your mind. Just also how a pilot practices certain aspects of landing the aircraft and the checklist they have to go through or or whatever, like this is something that we can rehearse mentally. Some other finer points that I wanna talk about. So one, again, another kudos to Dr. Ducanto. When you Google his name, you're gonna see he's also invented a suction catheter with this technique in mind. So there's a couple of unique aspects to this suction catheter. 
The first one is it's just bigger around than your normal Yankauer suction catheter, which is great. It can remove more contaminants than the one that is stocked on probably 80% of the ambulances out there. So that's really helpful. The other thing is it has a more hyperextended curvature to it. Basically, it's shaped more like a Mac laryngoscope blade because that's kind of the shape you're looking for to get into where we need to get to really suction the airway. That also helps with that little trick I was talking about being able to use the suction catheter to kind of manipulate the tongue a little bit as you're trying to advance the laryngoscope. So that's an advantage of that large bore suction catheter that he's created. And then the last advantage of it, which is kind of neat, is if this is the worst airway we could think of, I don't know, esophageal varices, horrible bloodbath, whatever, if you get the suction down in there, you may only get a second where you see the glottic opening. Well, the advantage to the internal diameter of this large bore suction catheter is in the worst case scenario, you can intubate the trachea with this suction catheter, then remove the suction from it and put the bougie through the suction catheter and continue with basically what would be known as like a tube exchange procedure. Now, is that common? Hopefully not for you. That's a little bit, you know, unorthodox, a little cowboy, but it is possible. And that was a deliberate design of that large bore suction catheter, which is pretty neat too. Yeah, I think this Ducanto suction is, you know, honestly really nice to have if you have it, but maybe cost prohibitive for a lot of agencies. And I will say, even if you cannot afford the Ducanto suction or you do not have it in your agency, you still use this exact same technique with your Yankau suction. It is important. Lead with your suction, whatever suction you have. 100%. Remember, we right now are in the business of giving you practical tips. The practical tip, like Ross said, is lead with suction, not go buy this thing. Sweet, Will. This was great. Summarize this episode for me. How are we going to do this laryngoscopy? First, setup counts. Get your gear. Get it all ready. Position your patient appropriately. Pre-oxygenate them. Make your first attempt your best. My second kind of point, deliberately work the blade into the mouth and work it down the tongue with the goal being to identify the epiglottis. Don't make your primary goal, I have to identify the vocal cords. If you can get to the epiglottis, you can get to the vocal cords. And my last point is, use the salad technique on every patient, not just someone that's spewing emesis and blood but lead with that suction and use this deliberate practice on every patient. If you prepare everything and don't need it, that is not wasted effort. Practice, prepare, and visualize, and you will be ready for your next intubation. Thanks so much, Will. Absolutely, Ross. Hopefully you guys can take these practical tips, go in the lab or find an airway mannequin at your agency, practice these things, and you don't need live patients to do this, but it will help you on your next live patient. Mm-hmm.